So far, King Ahab of Israel has had a relatively tempestuous reign. His eagerness to set up shrines to his wife Jezebel's pagan gods is not looked on favourably by the Bible. In this book, there is only one God worth bothering with, the God of Israel. Because of this, the Bible describes how God ordered a drought that raged for three years. The rain only returns after a dramatic showdown on a mountaintop between Israel's prophet Elijah and Jezebel's pagan shamans. Elijah's God triumphs and he flees Jezebel's revenge in terror. Meanwhile, a vast coalition force gathers to crush Israel. Incredibly, Israel is able to defend itself successfully with a much smaller army. The vibe is high and all Ahab needs to do is ride it, something which he appears chronically unable to do. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible episode 83, Licked Up by Dogs. Welcome to my podcast and welcome to the season 10 finale. Holy Bible is the podcast that leaves no flimsy gilt-edged page of the Bible unturned. And, full disclosure, the first book of Kings is not the Bible's most read book. Nor, surprise surprise, is the book that follows it, the imaginatively named second book of Kings. Still, these books do contain some eye-opening stories. Child sacrifices, dogs licking up human blood, and another visit from the angel of death. As for me, I'm neither a priest nor a theologian, so you're probably wondering what creds I have to pull off a guided tour of the Bible such as this one. Well, I'm an advertising creative director who loves spending his spare time making the Bible more accessible. My firm belief is that the Bible is for everyone, not just religious people. And to be honest, I was a bit fed up of having debates with people about Christianity when many of those outside and some inside the church have such little knowledge of what the Bible actually says. Anyway, yada yada. Have a listen and see what you think. Any feedback welcome. Here's Ahab. Under Ahab and Jezebel, morality in Israel is at a low ebb. This is demonstrated perfectly when Ahab decides that he would like a vineyard which doesn't belong to him. The vineyard in question is owned by a man called Naboth and is ideally situated next to Ahab's palace in Jezreel. The king wants the land to plant a vegetable garden and offers to buy Naboth a different plot in exchange or to simply pay him for it. Naboth refuses on principle. The land has been in his family for generations. Naboth knows that it will take years for a new plot of land to produce grapes of the same quality, hence his reluctance to sell. Ahab retires to his bed in a sulk, refusing even to eat. It is here that Jezebel finds him and mocks his lack of kingly leadership. Her husband is to get up and cheer up, she says. The vineyard is as good as theirs. Jezebel then sends letters embossed with the king's seal to the elders of Naboth's town. 
The men are to announce a day of fasting and to sit Naboth opposite two rogues who will bring charges against him for cursing both God and his king. On the testimony of these two men, Naboth will be taken out of the city and stoned to death. It's unclear how much Ahab knows of Jezebel's plot and how much she keeps from her husband, but the fast is called and Naboth is accused by the men who he is sitting with. He is then dragged out of the city, where he is killed for his apparent acts of treachery. With Naboth dead, Jezebel tells Ahab that there is nothing stopping him from taking ownership of the much-wanted vineyard. The book describes how God then sends the prophet Elijah to find Ahab in his new plot of land and to let him know what he thinks of such a despicable act. The message is that for murdering an innocent man and stealing his property, dogs will lick up Ahab's blood in the same place they licked up the blood of his victim. Ahab recognises his arch nemesis. You have found me, my enemy, he says to the prophet. Elijah tells him that he only found him because of the atrocious act of evil which is just carried out. Elijah vows that God will wipe out Ahab's descendants and cut him off from everyone in Israel. His fate will be like Jeroboam's and Baasha's before him because they all led their nation away from God. Dogs will also devour Jezebel outside the royal palace, Elijah says. And as for everyone else in his family, it's the same curse that has been used several times already in the book. All who die in the city will be eaten by dogs, while birds will pick apart all those who die in the country. The book concedes that there really is no one quite like Ahab in his commitment to evil, all the while encouraged and enabled by his queen. His idol-worshipping is described as vile. When Ahab hears what Elijah has to say, he appears chastened, putting on sackcloth and fasting, but it is too little, too late. All his remorse achieves, readers are told, is that God delays his vengeance on Ahab's family until after he has died, and it appears that no amount of contrition can avert the grisly deaths of both Ahab and his evil bride. When Ahab begins his rule, the saintly king Asa is in charge of Judah. His reign is covered back in episode 80. In Ahab's later years, Judah's king is Jehoshaphat, who comes to Ahab with a plan. For three years, Israel and Aram enjoy a ceasefire. Ahab then receives a visit from Judah's king, and the two monarchs discuss the Levitical city of Ramoth-Gilead. Fans of the Netflix show The Handmaid's Tale will be familiar with the dystopian republic of Gilead, but actual Gilead is far less exciting and may refer to a number of towns and territories to the east of the River Jordan. The former Israelite town of Ramoth Gilead was originally planned as one of a number of cities for Levite priests to live in and is currently under Aramean rule. It bothers Ahab that nothing has been done to reclaim it. Judah's king Jehoshaphat is all for a bit of Aram bashing and puts all his men and horses at Ahab's disposal. There is one condition, however. Jehoshaphat needs to know from God if the attack is something that he is in favour of. 
It's possibly not a request which Ahab is expecting, as he never asks God anything. Plus, his blood is up and he wants to ride into battle as soon as possible. Still, he manages to pull together 400 of his own prophets, who all confirm what he already knows, that fighting the Arameans is a fantastic idea, and that victory is as good as theirs. Clearly doubting the quality or holiness of Ahab's gaggle of holy men, Jehoshaphat asks if there isn't a prophet in Israel who they can ask who actually believes in God. Why Elijah isn't everyone's first choice has to be the big unanswered question in this part of the book, especially as the prophet has already been given so much airtime. Instead, a man called Micaiah is chosen by Ahab, albeit begrudgingly. The king claims that this prophet never has a good thing to say about him. Jehoshaphat seems horrified at the suggestion that Micaiah might allow a personal vendetta to get in the way of his holy transmissions, and the prophet is summoned. While the two kings sit on thrones set up by the gates to Samaria, Ahab's prophets fall over themselves to promise success to the campaign against Aram. One has even fashioned some bull's horns from iron and vows that these will gore the Arameans until they are no longer a threat. The suggestion being that Ahab and Jehoshaphat are the horns. The other prophets chime in, agreeing that the battle will be a success. The messenger sent to fetch Micaiah gives him a heads up, telling him that all the other prophets are unanimous, and so it is in his best interest to step in line. Micaiah's response is unsurprising for a genuine prophet. He can only say what God tells him to. As soon as Micaiah arrives at the city gate, Ahab asks him if the assault on Ramoth-Gilead is a good plan. Surprisingly, the prophet assures him that the battle will result in victory. Smelling a rat, Ahab demands that his troublesome saint tell him the truth. This time, Micaiah elaborates, telling the kings that he sees Israel's army scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd, and that God is telling them to return home peacefully. The suggestion is that the troops might live, but Ahab will die. Ahab is not surprised. This kind of negativity is typical of Micaiah, he tells Jehoshaphat. Micaiah continues, describing a scene in heaven where God is surrounded by his angelic army. This is the first time in the Bible that reference is made to a multitude in heaven, a theme picked up on in the New Testament during the Nativity and in the revelation of the Apostle John. In this heavenly diorama, God wants to know who can entice Ahab to fight a battle in which he will die and one bright angel volunteers to be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of his prophets so that they will all encourage him to fight. According to Micaiah, God thinks that this is a brilliant idea, and so the spirit entered the mouths of Israel's prophets. This is why they are encouraging him to attack Ramoth-Gilead, he says. God is planning to destroy him. This is too much for the, inverted commas, holy man who earlier was parading with iron horns. He slaps Micaiah in the face and asks him which way the spirit went. The ominous answer is that he will find out when he is hiding in an inner room. 
Micaiah is then taken to the cells with instructions to only feed him bread and water until Ahab returns from battle. However, it is Micaiah who has the last word. If Ahab returns to Samaria, then God has not spoken, he says. Still, Israel's most agnostic king seems completely unfazed at what God thinks, steps inside his chariot and heads for the city of Ramoth-Gilead. The finale of the first book of Kings is a dramatic one as two armies set out to win back territory for Israel. Regardless of the advice which they've just been given, Ahab and Jehoshaphat ride into battle against the Aramaeans, a decision which the prophet Micaiah has promised will be fatal for Israel's king. Thinking that he can outsmart either God, the Aramaeans, Micaiah or all three, Ahab decides to enter the fray in disguise. This is typical of what has been described as Ahab's half-belief, half-unbelief, and he appears genuinely convinced that a mere costume change might outwit God. Jehoshaphat, on the other hand, is free to wear his royal robes. The battle isn't really his. He's just here to offer moral support and firepower, and so is less of a target. Aram's king, most likely Ben-Hadad, zeroes in on Israel's king like a laser, ordering his 32 chariot commanders to attack only Ahab. Jehoshaphat has a lucky escape. In his royal regalia, he is mistaken for Ahab, and only when he cries out do his pursuers realise that he is not their public enemy number one and give up the chase. Meanwhile, Ahab is hit by a stray arrow that enters through a gap in his armour, and he orders his chariot driver to take him away from the fighting. He remains propped up in his chariot facing the Aramaeans, no doubt so that he can still give orders as his blood drains out onto the chariot floor. Ahab dies that evening, and as the sun sets, his men scatter to their homes, fulfilling Micaiah's prophecy. The king is brought back to Samaria, where he is buried, and while his chariot is being washed in a pool where local prostitutes come to bathe, dogs lick up the blood. The prophecy given by Elijah has come true too. Again, read us appointed to the now long-lost annals of the kings of Israel for more information about Ahab, and mention is given to Ahab's fabulous ivory palace and the cities which he fortified. Side note, in the early 20th century, archaeologists discovered vast amounts of ivory artefacts in a palace complex in Samaria, which might well have been Ahab's. Israel's maverick king dies and is replaced by a son on whom all the punishment earned by Ahab will fall, Ahaziah. The battle against Aram is the high point in the otherwise uneventful but benign reign of Judah's king Jehoshaphat. The first book of Kings ends with a brief summary of Jehoshaphat's rule. Asa's son reigns for 25 years, almost all of them while Ahab is in charge of Israel. One of Judah's few godly leaders, Jehoshaphat keeps to the Jewish laws and readers are told that God is pleased with his king. However, Jehoshaphat allows the pagan shrines known as high places to coexist with temple worship and fails to clamp down on anyone who offers sacrifices or burns incense here. As readers have seen, Jehoshaphat has an unlikely ally in the almost completely godless king of Israel, Ahab 
a clear case of opposites attracting. Jehoshaphat is praised for ridding Judah of the male prostitutes who appear to be a fixture at pagan shrines, and the king builds a fleet of trading ships, which he hopes will bring back gold from Ophir. At the time, neighbouring Edom is a rudderless nation with no king, making it easy for Israel to take control of its Red Sea ports. However, it is in the port of Ezion Geber on the Gulf of Aqaba that Jehoshaphat's merchant fleet is wrecked before it can ever set sail. Frustratingly, archaeologists have yet to find the port of Ezion Geber and the hall of ancient ships that may lie beneath it. By this point, Ahab's son Ahaziah is king of Israel and wants to plan a joint trading voyage with Jehoshaphat. Wanting to distance himself from Israel after the mess at Ramoth-Gilead, Jehoshaphat declines. The long-lost annals may contain many other stories of Jehoshaphat's reign, but all readers are told here is that he is buried with his ancestors in Jerusalem, leaving his son Jehoram in charge of Judah. As for Ahaziah of Israel, he appears to be no better than his parents, worships Baal, and, so readers are told, makes God angry for leading his people astray, just as Jeroboam did. So far, it's been seven agnostic kings out of seven for Israel, and though the nation holds a lot of aces as far as territory and population numbers, the suggestion is that it can no longer count on the support of God. Without this, Israel really does appear to have been cut adrift from the kingdom to the south. Ahaziah reigns over Israel for just two years, and the first book of Kings ends at the beginning of his rule, just as Jehoram takes over the throne of Judah. The prophet Elijah has been relatively quiet since Ahab's death and is preparing to hand over the mantle to his protege, Elisha. Israel and Judah may have split, but thanks to the efforts of Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they are no longer at war. Aram remains a threat, and Israel has yet to throw a six when it comes to kings who wholeheartedly believe in God. Turbulent times are coming to both nations, whose ups and dramatic downs are told in the Book of Kings' gripping sequel. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. If you like what you hear, please do tell friends and family, or better still, leave a review wherever you're listening. See you all soon, I'll be back with season 11. Music